Hello, and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I want to thank you for your patience as the gap between episodes has been longer than I intended. I want to start by letting you know that this story started out as a ghost story, but evolved into something more of an unexplained slash unsolved crime story. Some of the details shared here are explicit in terms of the violent death one man suffered. Listener discretion is advised. This story became more complicated than I could have ever imagined. Just when I thought I'd almost finished writing it, I came upon a whole new set of evidence that needed deep consideration. I hope you'll find the wait was worth it. So sit back, relax, and journey with me back to the turn of the 20th century. Today, we'll be exploring a mysterious death from the annals of Ohio's collegiate history. This event, tragic and sudden as it was, would capture the nation's imagination and horror in the weeks and months that followed. It would plunge a small liberal arts college into chaos as hints of scandal and a rumored cover-up swirled. It would lead to reforms and laws on hazing, the cruel rights of initiation into social groups like fraternities and sororities. Forensic experts who study the case yet today disagree on what killed the young man, and shadows linger on the culpability of the fraternity brothers from whom he so desperately longed for acceptance. Kenyon College is Ohio's oldest private college, whose founding was funded by British autocrats in 1824. It's nestled in the sleepy town of Gambier, whose total population barely exceeds the college's enrollment of about 1,700 students. The setting is rural and picturesque. The buildings are what one thinks of as an old-world college. Think heavy stone Gothic edifices facing sprawling, manicured lawns. At the turn of the 20th century, Kenyon's reputation in Ohio had been in place for over 75 years, It had produced such notable alumni as U.S. Supreme Court justices, a U.S. Secretary of War, and most notably, our nation's 19th president, Rutherford B. Hayes. Today, Kenyon's reputation of academic excellence, achievement, and ambition remains. However, something deeper resides on the campus's more than 380 acres of Ohio's rolling hills. The feeling is palpable for many first-time visitors to the place. It's something of a heavy silence that settles in the bones. It's something of the history that the stone buildings have absorbed in the nearly two centuries of the college's existence. Although many have come and gone from Kenyon's halls, some have stayed. Reportedly, spirits linger on in this beautiful place, watching the living go about their business. Perhaps they have unfinished business of their own that needs tending. Local legend holds that ghosts are found in multiple locations across campus. In fact, there's enough ghost stories to fill several podcast episodes. But for our purposes, we'll home in on only one, the spirit of a freshman whose death was never fully understood. At the turn of the 20th century, a narrow train bridge spanned the Kokosing River, which runs along the campus's southwestern edge. Today, the rails have been paved and converted to a bike trail. 
The Iron Framework Bridge remains, and the views it offers of the river are stunning in every season. The rails and ties have been long pulled up and discarded. Yet it seems there's someone in particular who remembers they once existed there. He's said to haunt the bridge, the very place where he met his demise. Some have witnessed the spirit of a young man wandering up and down the bridge's length. Others have witnessed the spirit laying prostate across where the rails once ran. And yet others who've hiked to campus from the location have reported hearing the mournful whistle of a locomotive somewhere in the distance. This is the legend of one Stuart Lathrop Pearson. At 18 years old, Stuart was more boy than man. His build was slight, his skin smooth and glowing in the likeness only youth can render. His father would describe him as a, quote, quiet fellow, undemonstrative, and not quick to make friends. He'd been born and raised in College Hill, Cincinnati. His father, Newbold Pearson, was a wealthy lumber dealer and had encouraged his middle of three sons to attend his alma mater, Kenyon College. Newbold had been an active and proud member of Delta Kappa Epsilon, colloquially known as the Deeks. He beamed at the thought of his son carrying on the family tradition. He booked train passage to attend young Stewart's initiation into the group on October 28, 1905. The events that would follow on that night would be reported on in newspapers across the country for months to follow. Later on, we'll talk of the press coverage as a story within itself, but for now, hear the story according to William Foster Pierce. He was president of Kenyon College during the time of the incident. At about 9 p.m. on the evening of October 28, 1905, Freshman Stuart Pearson left his room in Old Kenyon, carrying a basket of specified contents, including a packed lunch, a pack of cigarettes, and a coil of rope all covered in cloth. Earlier that day, he and his father had gone about town purchasing the items as directed. He'd been instructed by members of the fraternity he'd been pledging, Delta Kappa Epsilon, to walk to the entrance of the train bridge at 9 o'clock that night, and wait for a committee of members to meet him there. On his way out of his dorm room, he said goodbye to his father, stating, Good night, Pop. I'll see you after a while. Newbold was himself a deke and had made the trip from Cincinnati to help welcome the new pledges into the fraternity that night. The distance from Stewart's dormitory to the bridge was about an eight-minute hike through a wooded area. Stewart was to go there, alone, and wait for further instructions. After his departure, his father, the other alumni, and current members walked to the Deke Lodge, which was about a mile in the opposite direction of the bridge. There, preparations were being made for the rest of the evening's initiation activities. Committees were then assigned to go and collect the pledges who'd been sent to various places across campus. Newbold declined the offer to retrieve his own son. He wanted to see who among them would take interest in Stuart, as he knew he was having a hard time fitting in and making friends. When the request for volunteers to collect Stuart was made, no one stepped forward. Finally, Stuart's roommate, a senior by the name of York, agreed to be on his committee 
and two other alumni were assigned to complete the group of three. One of the alumni was a Mr. Shan, Kenyon's current organist and seminary student, and the second was a Mr. Brown, a husband and father who owned a business in Zanesville. All three of these men had remained present with Stewart's father until they left the lodge. The committee set out to retrieve the young pledges at about 9.40. Upon reaching the entrance to the bridge, the committee of three men did not find Stuart Pearson, but instead the basket he'd been carrying, its contents undisturbed. It was laying on the tracks between the rails at the entrance to the bridge. York would later state that an ominous feeling settled over him, seeing the basket there, one that he couldn't explain. On calling his name and whistling loudly, the group heard only silence. On thinking that he may have been confused and crossed to the other side of the bridge, they began walking the expanse. They soon discovered an overcoat, or part of one anyway, that had been torn and tattered in such a way that it was hardly recognizable. A few steps later, York would spot something big and bulky, lying on the tracks before him. But the moon was new, and the sky lit only by stars. Perhaps it was his own wishful thinking when York told the other two that a cow had been hit by a train, and its carcass was there on the bridge. Only when they lit a match did they see what laid before them. York instinctively knew what he was seeing, but still suggested that maybe it was a dummy someone had left there to scare them. It was only three days before Halloween. The reality crashed in on him on recognizing Stuart's shoes and garters, still holding up his socks. He'd barely whispered this recognition to the others when the group heard the faint whistle of an oncoming engine. Panicked and traumatized, York grabbed Stuart's legs and ordered the others to lift him. Brown refused, saying he couldn't do it, so York and Shan lifted Stuart's still warm body and ran toward the abutment. They stumbled on Stuart's clothes, which were torn and dragging on the ground. The group made it to safety just as a freight train came plowing through. They laid his body on the gravel and stared at one another. The roar of the train amplified their own stunned confusion. When it finally passed, Shan lit another match to convince himself that the worst had indeed happened. Stewart's head had been sliced clean off at the chin, leaving its torso and mangled limbs. York again confirmed that the shoes were Stewart's. It was then that the bells from campus rang out 10 o'clock. York, the youngest and fittest of the bunch, took off through the darkened woods to President Pierce's home while the other two stayed with Stuart's body. When he finally arrived covered in burrs, he knocked on Pierce's door. On opening, Pierce found a dazed and traumatized York. His face was some shade of white and his eyes stared at something fixed in the distance. It took nearly ten minutes to get the story out of him. He finally managed to tell the president what they'd found when they'd gone to retrieve Stuart. Thankfully, Newbold, Stuart's father, wasn't there to hear it. He'd been assigned to another committee and was retrieving yet another young pledge. 
In fact, at this very time, Newbold was with the group waiting at a meeting point. Stewart and his committee were the only ones not yet returned from their stations. It was now about 10.15, and President Pierce's first action was to call the town's physician, a Dr. Irvin Workman, and send him to the bridge. There, the doctor would find the two men just as York had left them, with Stewart's body standing at the entrance to the bridge. The doctor instructed one of the men to run to a nearby pumping station and bring back a lantern so they could see more easily. The pumping station manager, a Mr. Edward Gorsuch, would provide the lantern and follow the young man back to the bridge. Dr. Workman would make a point of showing Mr. Gorsuch the details of the scene so that he might serve as an additional witness to what was found. He also told Mr. Gorsuch of his plans to contact the coroner on getting Stewart's body back to campus. He would request a wagon, which would be provided by a Mr. Vernon, the town's butcher. The wagon would be used to transport Stewart's body to President Pierce's house. The doctor then ordered Mr. Gorsuch to wait until sunrise and collect any remaining pieces of the body that had been lost in the darkness. He would do so, finding only a section of skull and several separated teeth resting about 10 or 15 feet past the opposite side of the bridge. He would also find brain matter strewn along the ties and underneath the bridge. Once Stewart's remains were brought to the president's home, Pierce had the unenviable task of notifying Newbold of his son's untimely demise. A student named Duncan had been dispatched to the foot of the hill where Newbold had been waiting with the other Deke members and told him there'd been an accident and that he needed to head to the president's home. When he arrived after running through the darkened campus, Pierce told him flatly that his son had been killed in a train accident. Newbold fell into a chair and sat, stunned in silence. What seemed like several minutes went by before he asked if the boy's body had been torn up, and Pierce responded that he was afraid so. Snapping back into coherence, Newbold asked for assistance in bringing his son's remains home to his family. Being that it was Sunday, no passenger trains were to stop in Gambier until noon. Newbold was desperate to get his son's remains home as quickly as possible in order to avoid the spectacle of those who would surely gawk at him boarding the train with his son in a pine box. Newbold had found the only long-distance telephone in town, located at a private residence, and contacted the rail company to request a special train to arrive at Gambier at four in the morning. And thus, the coroner would not be contacted about the tragedy until after Newbold had left town with his son's remains. Newbold would later testify that he was not aware that the law required the coroner to make an examination. The undertaker who was present there that night would later testify that Pierce intended Dr. Workman to serve as his substitute for the coroner. The preparations of Stewart's body took place in Pierce's own home. Dr. Workman would suggest more than once that the coroner be contacted before removing Stewart's body from campus. However, the boy's father was insistent on leaving as soon as possible 
and Pierce himself felt dreadful that a student had died and believed it was his duty to fulfill the wish of the grief-stricken father. Therefore, no inspection of the boy's remains were made by county officials. Although he was inclined to believe the incident was an accident, Dr. Workman was concerned that no one had been there to witness the death. No one knew for sure the circumstances which led up to it. Pierce heard Dr. Workman's concerns, but explained that a special train had already been ordered by Newbold to transport the body back to the family home in Cincinnati. And thus, the coroner would not be summoned until later that day. All those present during the preparation of Stewart's remains would later testify that there were no marks on the body that would indicate that Stewart had been tied or restrained to the tracks. This testimony would counter evidence that surfaced in the days to come. The county coroner, a Mr. Scarborough, would be summoned later that morning by Dr. Workman. However, this was after Newbold had left town with the boy's remains. President Pierce claimed that he had assembled all necessary witnesses to the events that night and that he had prepared to turn over the boy's clothing. Coroner Scarborough was anything but grateful. He was angry at how events had unfolded. He was disinclined to accept Pierce's pledges to assist in the investigation process. To him, efforts had clearly been made to obstruct the investigation before it had even started. The bridge had been washed of blood from the rails and all traces of the accident vanished. This had been done by a local law enforcement officer, a Marshal Frank Dial. Dial would later testify that he had heard about the accident from a townsperson. Even though his shift ended at 9 p.m. that night, he and another man, a Mr. Thurston McMahon, decided to head out to the scene. McMahon had been scheduled to serve a banquet for the Deeks that night the banquet had, of course, been canceled. McMahon would later testify that Zach Taylor, a member of the Deeks, offered to pay him $3 to clean the bridge. McMahon acknowledged that he buried a piece of muscle that he'd found there. He was never paid the money he was promised. The town marshal, Frank Dial, would also later testify that he had witnessed another young pledge being tied near the Deek Lodge, quote, like a horse to a hitching post. He acknowledged that it was rumored that the Deeks and other fraternities tied pledges to the track during initiation. However, he'd never found any proof that the rumor was true. Dial and McMahon would take it upon themselves to sweep and clean the scene of all evidence. Dial explained that he'd done it in an effort to prevent others from gawking at it. He'd taken no effort to notify the coroner having been under the impression that Dr. Workman was acting in the coroner's stead. Coroner Scarborough, incensed that the boy's remains had been removed without his consent, booked passage on the next train to Cincinnati. There he would conduct his own examination of Stewart's body, and on November 12th he would file his conclusions with the local Knox County officials. In addition to his examination of Stewart's remains there in Cincinnati, Scarborough had taken 33 sworn testimonies to the event. He included these testimonies in his final report. He stated, emphatically, that Stuart Pearson had been lying on the rails about 20 feet west of the abutment on the train bridge of the Cleveland-Akron and Columbus Railway Company. 
Scarborough's own words verbatim were as follows. From the condition of the body of the said Stuart Pearson, which I examined after the same had been sent out of Knox County to Cincinnati, and from which examination I have found evidence of having been bound or tied at the wrists and at the ankles, and which, in conjunction with all the evidence adduced, I find, therefore, that the said Stuart Pearson was either tied fast to the railroad track or railroad ties, or was otherwise bound and tied in such a manner that he could not extricate himself from his perilous position, and was run over by an engine and tender going west on said railroad, which struck him while lying flat between the rails on the main track and said bridge, and in that matter met his death. Although no ropes or ties had ever been found, and no witnesses reported knowledge that Stewart had been restrained, Coroner Scarborough was sure of his conclusion. When he arrived in Cincinnati, he requested assistance from the Detective Bureau of the Cincinnati Police Department. Detective Krim, a seasoned officer, accompanied Scarborough to his examination of Stewart's remains there in the family home. The men would find bruises and indentations on Stewart's ankles and right wrist, which were consistent with ropes or ties. Detective Krim would assert a level of certainty that Stewart had been struggling against his restraints in the moments before impact. The experienced law officer noted that Stewart's right hand had been torn from the socket at the end of the forearm and that a narrow bruise encircled the wrist as if caused by the pressure of the rope. The same kind of bruise was visible on both ankles. These marks were consistent with those found on persons who use great strength in trying to free themselves from a rope or a cord. He was confident that the marks resulted from Stewart's effort to free himself. Further corroborating evidence included the discovery of about 100 microscopic fibers that had been ground into the fabric inside the bottom of Stewart's trouser legs and coat sleeves. These fibers were also located on his socks. They matched fibers from the ropes that each initiate was to carry with them in their baskets. You may remember that Stewart's basket had been left undisturbed. The ropes still coiled nicely among the other items. Scarborough would make vigorous complaints about the site of the incident having been cleaned and removed of any physical evidence. He therefore had to rely solely on the reports of witnesses. He lamented that he was not able to identify any specific person or persons who had done the deed, and he deferred to Prosecutor Stilwell for continuing the investigation in hopes that his efforts might turn up the guilty parties. President Pierce strenuously objected to these claims and stated that Coroner Scarborough was simply out to make a name for himself. Pierce asserted a theory that Stewart had been sleep-deprived the night before. The train that his father had arrived on the previous night had been severely delayed. Stewart had stayed up all night waiting until his father finally arrived at 6.30 a.m. Then he stayed up the following day throughout his father's visit. Pierce assumed that Stewart had gone to the specified location at the entrance to the bridge, which was wide and flat, posing no danger of entrapment. He theorized that Stewart had fallen asleep, but had been startled awake by the train, and in confusion, mistakenly ran onto the tracks. 
From this point forward in the podcast, I'll lay out the startling evidence, both accusatory and exculpatory, and allow you to make your own conclusion as to who, if anyone, killed Stuart Pearson. If ever there was a reason for a person's spirit to linger after unresolved events, this scenario proves the point. One of the most ardent defenders of the Deke fraternity brothers was a fraternity brother himself. Stewart's father, Newbold Pearson, had asked President Pierce to travel to his home in Cincinnati to help officiate Stewart's funeral proceedings. The funeral was on Tuesday morning, held at the Pearson home. Four students attended along with President Pierce, with three of them acting as pallbearers. These young men included York, Stewart's roommate, and Taylor, the Deke member who instructed Stewart to go to the railway bridge that night. Taylor, wrought with guilt, had said to the others, quote, I am the man who is responsible, for I sent him that instruction to go to the bridge. President Pierce was sure that all the Deeks had been contrite and forthcoming about the entire incident. Newbold had given multiple statements to the press, exonerating the college and the fraternity from any wrongdoing in his son's fatal train accident, as he called it. He agreed with Pierce's theory that Stewart had fallen asleep and was stunned awake. He'd said of Stewart that, quote, he'd been sent to the bridge to await the initiating party, and in some way, we know not exactly, he was killed. He offered further points, which were substantial to the claim that the incident was indeed an accident. Firstly, Newbold claimed that if Stewart had been tied, lying prostrate across the tracks, the engineer would have come to see him lying there before the train crossed the bridge. None of the three crew members on the train that night had seen him, or even knew they had struck him. Newbold believed the fact that he was not visible suggested that Stewart had indeed leapt in front of the train in the briefest of seconds before impact. Second, as to the marks found on Stewart's wrists and ankles suggesting that he'd been tied with ropes, Newbold chose to believe the accounts of Dr. Workman and the other men who had initially prepared Stewart's remains before returning them to Cincinnati. The body was seriously mangled, Newbold believed that no one injury could be attributed to anything but the massive and traumatic damage incurred at the time of impact. Newbold's third point was to the contents of the basket, which included a rope, the incriminating object. Newbold offered his own insight on this. He said it was tradition for pledges to be led back to the lodge by a rope. The rope was never used in any means of restraint. Not only that, but Stewart's basket had been found at the entrance to the bridge with its contents, including the rope, untouched. Newbold rejected Coroner Scarborough's theory that another rope had been used in the deed. Fourth, a great number of members present that night were, like Newbold himself, adults and respected members of their communities. Surely they would not have allowed such dangerous and heinous acts to take place under their watch. Fifth and final, Newbold claimed to have known in his heart that none of his fraternity brothers would have ever put one of their own in such a dangerous situation. He had pleaded with the press to drop the subject altogether, 
In speaking of the Deeks, he said, quote, They are not to blame, and all these innuendos are breaking Stewart's mother's heart. I could only find one article that focused on Stewart's mother's perspective. Just as her husband, Miss Margaret Pearson, pleaded with the press, and it's here that I'd like to comment on the press myself. When I first started writing this episode, I focused primarily on news reports of the time, which were plenty. Newspapers across the country followed this story closely and offered banner headlines about the young man's barbaric death and the heinous cover-up. Just when I was about to start recording the episode, I came across the 33 transcribed sworn testimonies which had been published by Kenyon College in the months following the incident. Remarkably, or perhaps unremarkably, you decide. The press got so many details wrong. In some cases, full articles were built on fabrication. Prosecutor Stilwell expressed much frustration about the false news reports and was adamant that he did not discuss details of an ongoing investigation with the press. Despite this, countless articles touted the claims that bloodied ropes had been found stashed less than 200 feet from where Stewart died. This proved widely exaggerated. Three lengths of ropes, which were found a half mile away, were accounted for by another pledge. They were not bloodied, but did contain one small spot of blood from a nosebleed he was confirmed to have suffered that night. These false media reports were abhorred by the coroner and prosecutor as rumors continued to swirl. This media frenzy was a good example of what we today call fake news. It seems it's been around for as long as humans have reported on remarkable stories. Some media outlets picked up on the counter-narrative which was emerging. This centered on the incident as a tragic accident, only made all the more tragic by a beleaguered set of grieving parents and falsely accused college officials and fraternity members. The assertions of Coroner Scarborough were lies manufactured to support his own reputation. Some news reports also turned meta, reviewing their own coverage of the grisly events as fodder for selling papers. Imaginative newspaper reporters were looking for a good scoop and found one in the beleaguered character of Stuart Pearson. While this line of reporting became evident in the months that passed, it was still much more the exception than the rule. Most accounts followed the thread of Stuart as a hapless, naive victim to the reckless, careless rituals that led to his death. The plot only deepened as reports surfaced of a conspiracy to cover up the college's and fraternity's liabilities in the matter. These claims were wide and far-reaching. Only a couple of witnesses in Coroner Scarborough's investigation claimed that the practice of tying young pledges to the tracks was commonly known in the community. Yet, that wasn't the biggest bombshell contained in Scarborough's witness testimonies. Dr. Irvin Workman, the town physician, had conceded that he believed Stewart had been lying on the tracks when the train struck him. His review of the injuries of Stewart's body was that he had been lying in front of the train, not standing or sitting, which would have caused his body to glance off one side or the other. He maintained a belief that Stewart had been lying at the entrance to the bridge. 
This was concluded because Dr. Workman stated that he found the first evidence of Stewart's remains lying on the tracks about 15 feet in from the entrance. As to the question of whether Stewart had been tied down, Dr. Workman would not make a definitive conclusion. He would only state that he had not observed the marks that Coroner Scarborough had during his examination of the body in Cincinnati. Given all the evidence that had been accruing, Prosecutor Stilwell set a date for indictment with the grand jury on November 13, 1905. This concludes our first episode on the mysterious death of Stuart Pearson. Please tune in to Part 2 to learn about the grand jury proceedings, the explosive revelations, and the forensic evidence which would leave the case in the public eye for months and years to come. If you've enjoyed listening to Ohio Folklore, please subscribe, rate, and review it on your preferred podcast platform. Ohio Folklore is easily found on Facebook. If you have a legend you'd like featured in a future episode, please let me know. And as always, keep wondering.